Some of you might have gotten confused and thought it was Easter in here, right? That's good. It should be Easter every week. So let me invite you to take your Bibles, and we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. Now, as you're turning there, if you're just visiting with us and you flip it open and you see what Genesis 5 is about, you're probably wondering, why did this pastor choose to preach Genesis 5? Well, it's because we are walking through this first part of Genesis. One of the things we typically do here is we like to walk through either whole books of Scripture or at least sections of it because we don't just want to hit what we think are the highlights. We believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful. And so that includes chapters that, if we're honest, some of us might skip over. Hopefully this morning we're going to see that that would be a, a mistake for us to do so. So this morning we are in Genesis chapter 5. And I'm going to read this to us, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
This is the word of the Lord. Lots to be said here. But one of the things that came to my mind this week as I was preparing was, was actually one of my, uh, I don't want to say most favorite, but one of the most fascinating sports figures to me in history was a, a basketball player by the name of Jerry Lucas. Now, Jerry Lucas was a Hall of Fame basketball player. Don't get me wrong. The guy could, could ball. He, he could score. He could defend. He could rebound. He was clearly good at basketball to be a Hall of Famer. But there was something else about Jerry Lucas that is so captivating to me, that's so fascinating. And that is, this guy had a memory unlike anything you've ever seen. There's lots of stories about how good his memory was, but one of the most often repeated stories, something that got shown, was while he played in New York for the Knicks, word got out amongst people that he knew that he had memorized the first 70 pages of the Manhattan phone book. 70 pages of a phone book. So he's at at a party in New York with lots of other people, and somehow this comes up, and you know somebody there is going to be like, prove it. So this guy goes over, picks up a phone book, and Jerry tells him, turn to any one of the first 70 pages in there. So he goes to page 49. He says, now, just tell me what line you're on. As he counts down 52 names and says this name. He says, all right, that number is 612-4398. And he nails it. I mean, clearly, everybody's stunned. So the fact that this guy's memory is so phenomenal, like, people were just blown away by this. Now, when someone can memorize a list of names and numbers like that, two questions should immediately pop into your head. One is, how in the world did he do that? I mean, that's, there's, I don't know how many lines were on a page, at least 52 times 70 pages, and he could call, that's a lot of names and numbers. So how in the world did he do that? But the second question should pop into your head is, why in the world would anyone do that? What could possibly be worth our time memorizing that? My guess is some of you feel that very same way about the passage that we just read. Why in the world are we focusing on a list of names and numbers? Wouldn't we be just as well off memorizing the phone book? What could possibly be worth our time here? Now, I cannot, for the life of me, tell you why you would memorize a phone book. But I can tell you why the time spent digging into Genesis 5 is time well spent. Because for those who have ears to hear, Genesis 5 tells a story. Or maybe to say it better, Genesis 5 plays us a song. But before we get to the song, let's first figure out how does this passage fit into the bigger story that we've seen unfolding from Genesis 1. Notice how chapter 5 begins. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And right away our ears should perk up and that's a clue. Remember, we said earlier in the book that that phrase, these are the generations of, is a marker for us as the reader. It's, it's when you're reading some of those old books and you get to a new page and there's a giant letter, right? What does that tell you? There's a new chapter. It's, it's a visual clue to you as the reader. Ah, one section has ended and another's begun. So this is kind of tipping us off. You want to go ahead and put that slide up for me? We've now entered a new section in this part of Genesis. Do we have that one ready to go? Oh, thank you. 
All right, so see here, remember these are all broken up by this generations of, except for the very beginning of the book. There's nothing there. That's kind of just how everything comes to be. It's the prologue, if you will. We saw that in 1, 1 to 2, 3. Now we've been spending our time in the next section that had the header, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Kind of, this is how it all began. This is what life was like in the beginning. Well, now we've now entered the third section from 5, 1 to 6, 8. These are the generations of Adam. What happens as we go down the line? And we see that we'll be in that until 6, 9 when the generations of Noah take over. So what we saw as we looked back through these is that in the generations of the heavens and the earth, we saw how God made our first parents, Adam and Eve, and how he gives them this glorious purpose and a beautiful place to live in and rule over as his image bearers. But they rebelled against God and were banished from his place and forced to live in a world groaning under a curse. Then in Cain and Abel, we also saw the beginning of the battle between two lines of offspring, right? The offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Cain, as the seed of the serpent, drew first blood by killing his brother. But God provided another offspring in Seth, and the line of promise lives on and began to call upon the name of the Lord. So chapter 5 is now picking up this family line this family line through Seth, and it gives us a glimpse of where do things go from there. Now, if you, if you kind of did some stuff with the numbers here, what you realize is that we're fast-forwarding over 1,600 years at least in this one chapter. And this is one of the things genealogies do in the book of Genesis. They're like a fast-forward button. They fast-forward and they skip over lots of details. Consider what's happening here. In our one chapter... We're covering over 1,600 years. But then we're going to get to Noah. And over the almost next four chapters, it lasts basically a year plus. So why the disparity? Why is one chapter covering 1,600 years and the next four chapters cover a year or two? Well, because one of the things that genealogies do is they help us zoom out and they help us see the big picture. So we're fast-forwarding, not because the details aren't important, but because what's more important is the big picture. He doesn't want us to get lost in the details of what Jared or Mahalel did. He wants us to see what was happening in God's plan these 1,600 years. What's going on? And when we look to see what's going on in chapter 5, we see two things. The continuing effects of sin, but also the certainty of God's promise. I said that chapter 5 is like a song, and here's what I meant. There's a steady beat throughout. This ominous reminder that sin has consequences. That beat is a drumbeat of death. But over this drumbeat, there are other notes sounded. Notes of hope. Notes that remind us there is a life to be had in spite of all the death that they see. A life of joy and meaning and intimacy with your maker. And these notes of hope and life actually sound even sweeter when laid over the drumbeat of death. So this morning we're going to look at those two things. The drumbeat of death and the notes of hope. Okay, that's where we're going. Now as we read over chapter 5, there's a very clear structure and order 
and repetition to the genealogy. I hope you felt that. That's one of the reasons why I read it, even though it's so repetitious, is we're meant to feel the repetition. It, the formula goes like this. When so-and-so lived X years, he fathered this son. So-and-so lived this many more years and had other sons and daughters. And then they almost always end with the same three words. And he died. Over and over, this phrase punctuates the end of a paragraph and the end of a life. Like a drumbeat. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. All through the chapter. And that drumbeat is meant to be jarring to the reader. Because the last time we had a repetition of a phrase over and over like this was back in chapter 1. But there, the repetition, as we heard the song of creation, the drumbeat was, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. But now in chapter 5, instead of a creation pulsing with goodness, we have a creation marching to the beat of death. Generation after generation, death came for them. And notice how long they lived. 800, 900 years. The question we want to ask is, how is that possible? Like, what was their secret? What, was it a diet? Was it like, I don't know, exercise? We don't know. That's the short answer. There's lots of speculation. We don't know. But most likely it has to do with the effects of sin only beginning to take root in people and in their environment. But here's the thing. The fact that they lived so long would only have made death that much more jarring. Imagine Seth. Seth had grown up with his dad, Adam, telling him the story of the garden. Telling him the story of how God had warned them that if they ate from the tree, they would surely die. And yet, decade after decade, Century after century, it goes by and Adam is still there. He hadn't died. But then when Seth is 800 years old, it happens. His dad, Adam, dies. For the first time in 800 years, Seth is cut off from the father he loves. 800 years! Think how world-shaking that would be for Seth. I mean, we can't even imagine what life was like 800 years ago. And for the first time, he's known this person. He's been the closest person to him for 800 years, and now he's gone. And as Seth looks at Adam's lifeless body, he can't help but hear his dad telling him again of God's punishment for their sin, saying to Adam, you will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The curse had claimed a life. And then it claimed another. And then another. And then another and another. And as human history marched on, it marched to the drumbeat of death. And he died. And he died. And he died. And even today, that's the beat that's always beating in the background of every life. For all of us, there's a steady drumbeat of death constantly playing in the soundtrack of our lives. It's all around us. And every funeral is another beat. Each funeral is yet another, and he died. And no matter how hard we try to plug our ears and ignore it, 
the drumbeat of death just keeps on. We will all face death. It's one of the very few things that we all have in common. No matter how long or how short our lives may be, death comes to all of us. The question is, but why? Why does it have to be that way? What changed from a world pulsing with goodness in chapter 1 to a world marching to the drumbeat of death in chapter 5? And you know the answer. It's sin and the curse. God warned Adam and Eve that if they rejected God's word and rejected his rule over their lives, the consequence would be death. But they did it anyway. And because of that, we read in Romans 5 that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. The greatest argument for the fact that every human being is sinful isn't some complicated theological concept. It's funerals. The fact that we all have one is evidence that we have all sinned. Sin is why we die. In fact, the leading cause of death among humans in every age group of every time and every place is sin. It accounts for 100% of deaths in human history. And every death here in Genesis 5, as we read, is meant to remind us, sin did this. Every death today is meant to do the same thing. Funerals are meant to make us pause and be reminded, behold the awful wages of sin. The fact that death is so terrible and so sad and so painful is meant to show us this is what sin does. This is what happens when you reject your creator and try to live by your own rules. This Because of our sin, death is certain and inevitable. And yet, if we're honest, many of us just try to block it out. Pretend like it's not really there. Ignore its reality. Because we're afraid of it. Hebrews 2 says it's through fear of death that we were subject to lifelong slavery. Meaning we shaped our whole lives around trying to avoid or get past or get around or get through this thing called death. Because it terrifies us. We live our lives trying to outrun the grave. We think if we just don't look at it, if we just don't talk about it, don't think about it, it's not really there. Friends, we can ignore it. We can try to make it go away. We can try to patch over it with jokes or with nice-sounding words of comfort that don't offer real hope because they're not based in truth. But however we try to escape it, the drumbeat of death keeps pounding along, and he died. And he died, and he died. This is the drumbeat all through chapter 5. But it's not the only sound. Other notes break in, and they're easy to spot. Remember, I talked about how ordered and structured the chapter is, and how that helps us hear our drumbeat. It's the repetition, repetition, repetition. But there are three places where the structure is broken, where things are just a little different. And those are the places where above the drumbeat of death, we can hear notes of hope sounding loud and clear. And I want to point out three, three of those notes of hope. Our first note is heard right at the beginning in the part that talks about Adam. Look at the second half of verse 1. 
When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. So right away here in chapter 5, we're reminded that when God created man, he made him in his own likeness and in his own image. We talked about what an incredible honor this is, that mankind was the crown of creation. No other creature had the distinction of being in the creator's likeness. This is what God had done back in chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And notice that just like it did back there in chapter 1, God's word here in, ver in verse 2 says, male and female, he created them. And that's not a throwaway line. It's not a filler phrase. This is a reminder that God's plan to make us in his image included creating us male and female. He not only made our first parents, he made them male and he made them female. Their gender was not coincidental or what they chose it to be or what society told them it ought to be. It was how their maker created them to be in his good design. And not only did God design them to be the way he wanted, but we see that God also blessed them to do what he wanted. How did he bless them? If your Bibles are open, scan back to chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them. This is right after he makes them in his image. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's blessing was bound up in his commission to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over all that he's made. Those were his glorious purposes for mankind because to mankind was given the high privilege of being image bearers of God, representing him in the world to one another and ruling over the world he's made and getting to help produce more image bearers. We talked about this in Genesis 1 and what, what an incredible honor it is. And yet the question comes up after the fall and after Cain's grievous sin, has that honor been lost? Has the image of God been destroyed? Would God revoke his blessing of offspring? These are the questions that would have been hanging over the people. But then we read in verse 3 that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image. And we see two really massive things here. First, Adam fathered a son. And verse 4 says he had other sons and daughters. The blessing of God to be fruitful and multiply lives on. It hasn't been lost. And second, this son that Adam fathered, it says is in his likeness and image. But hold on. If Adam is made in the image and likeness of God. And this son is in Adam's image and likeness. That means the image of God has been passed down. It hasn't been destroyed. It's been distorted, yes, but not destroyed. Even after the horrific sin of the fall, 
the image and blessing of God live on. And this gives us hope because the image hasn't been lost. Friends, despite our own horrific sin, the image of God lives on in us. No matter what you look like and no matter what you've done, you are not worthless. You are gloriously noble. You have dignity and beauty and value because you are made in the image and likeness of God. And not just you, but everyone we live with and worship with and work with and go to school with and pass on the streets and watch on the news is a living, breathing likeness of God our maker. No matter what they look like, no matter what they've done, they are wondrously amazing beings worthy of being treated with dignity. And here's the great news. Even though we've distorted and marred the image of God in us through our sin, when we turn to Jesus, the image gets repaired, restored, and renewed. Colossians 3 says that when we put our hope in Christ, we have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's as though this, we were created these shiny things and through our sin they got all nicked and scuffed and fogged and muddied and just sullied. But then Jesus comes along and just buffs us off. says, no, you're going to look like your creator again. I'm going to make sure that it's more clearly seen in me. This restoring of the fullness of the image of God in us has been God's plan all along. Romans 8, 29 tells us that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, God's always been about making a family of image bearers. And in Jesus, we see that plan fulfilled. But here in Genesis 5, though, we see that the image of God and his blessing hasn't been lost or destroyed. It lives on and is passed down from generation to generation. That's our first note of hope. Now the second note of hope in our passage is found in the part about Enoch. Look down at verse 21 with me. Now notice it starts the same way. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Okay, so far, nothing of note. But then the pattern is broken. Verse 22, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now, there are two main things I want us to see from our friend Enoch here. The first is that there is a life that is stronger than than death. For the first time in human history, the drumbeat of death skips a beat. It, they would have been waiting, saying like, okay, we know what comes. Where was it? Enoch doesn't die. He goes from life to life. Life on earth to life in God's presence. These verses tucked into a genealogy in Genesis 5 are shouting to us, death doesn't have to have the last word. 
way at the beginning of your Bibles, before we're in the New Testament, before we've even heard the name Jesus, Genesis 5 is saying there's a life that's stronger than death. There's a life that's stronger than death. That ever-present enemy can be overcome. There's a way this foe doesn't have to frighten us the way it did. And as we read the story of Enoch, it should make your heart beat faster and make us gasp. Could it be? After nothing but, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Suddenly you're saying, it doesn't, it don't have to be like that? But how? How is that possible? What kind of life need not fear death? Well, the answer is in our text. What was different about Enoch? He walked with God. So there's some connection between a life that overcomes death and a life of walking with God. So the question we need to ask is, well, what does that mean to walk with God? If that's somehow connected to a life that overcomes death, I need to know, what does it mean to walk with God? One commentator I came across named Marcus Dodds was really helpful to me on this. He had much more to say, but here's some of what he says. I'm quoting him here. He says, Enoch walked with God because he was his friend and liked his company. Because he was going in the same direction as God and had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path. We walk with God when he is in all our thoughts. Not because we consciously think of him at all times, but because he is naturally suggested to us by all we think of. He goes on and says, like, I mean, aren't there people like that you know? I mean, think of, we always want to talk about young love. Like, you may not be thinking of the person you, you've fallen in love with all the time, and yet even when you're not thinking of them, somehow what you are thinking of draws your thoughts back to them. You're just out with friends, grabbing a burger, and they're like, hey, do you want ketchup? And right away you think, <laughs> I remember how she puts ketchup on her burger. That's so cute. Right? It has nothing to do with your friends or burgers, but there's something your mind can't, it's like a gravitational pull back to the person you love. He's saying, yeah, that's what it's like to walk with God. He's always in your thoughts. You're going the way he's going, not because it's a happy coincidence of like, oh God, you're going this way too. No, you're going that way because he's going that way. And you say, what do I want? I want whatever's in front of you, God. Whatever lies in your path, that's what I want. He goes on to say that walking with God means being on, I love this, thoroughly friendly terms with God. Thoroughly friendly. And by that he means that just like with a friend, we would never seek to do anything that would displease him. Right? You don't intentionally go out of your way to like do things that hurt or offend or grieve your friends. In fact, you, take, you make efforts not to. He says, well, that's what it is to walk with God. And when we do fall into sin, we don't rest until we resume our place of walking by his side. And if something bothers him, we give it up. And when our fellowship with him isn't what we want it to be, we feel lonely without him. In short, we love being in God's presence and we love to do what pleases him. That's what it says it means to walk with God. I just want to pause there for a second and, and just ask a question. Can you say that this morning? Would you say that you are on thoroughly friendly terms with God? Do you walk with him as a friend? Is he constantly in all your thoughts? 
even when you're thinking of something else? Does your heart ache for his companionship when you start to feel distant from him? Do you hate the sin that displeases him? And do you find your chief delight in just being with him? How can we have a relationship with God like that? What is the key to having a relationship like that? Well, what was the key for Enoch? Hebrews 11 tells us. In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What Enoch shows us is that there is a life that's stronger than death, and the only way to obtain that life is through walking with God by faith. And friends, the same that was true for Enoch is true for us. The incredible news of the gospel is that we can have a life that is stronger than death. It's available. It's, it's out there. It's not just a mythical concept. It's a reality that can be ours. We can live a life free from the fear of death. How? By walking with God by faith in Jesus. Jesus is the only human in history who didn't deserve to die. The drum should not have beat for Jesus because he had no sin. He perfectly walked with God. And yet, because of his great mercy, because of his great love for us, Jesus died the death we deserve so that we can have the life he deserves. He tasted death for us, and then he rose again to defeat death for us. And when we trust in him, Jesus promises us, promises us a life that death cannot destroy. He says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus promises us death-proof life. Think about that. Death-proof life. And what's the key? Did you hear how Jesus ended his exchange there? Do you believe this? The key to the life that Jesus offered, he says, is do you believe this? The key to unending life with God is walking with him by faith in his son. Are you walking with him? Are you walking with him? Notice one last thing about Enoch here before we move on. Notice that Enoch is number seven in the line of Adam through Seth. Count down the names starting to Adam. One, two, three, four. He's number seven. Now, if you remember last week, you remember who was seventh in line from Adam through Cain, the other fork in the family tree? Lamech. Lamech, the one who was the picture of the fullness of violence and rebellion and death and pretty much every anti-God thing you could think of is in Lamech. But the seventh in line through Seth is the picture of the fullness of life and intimacy with God. That's not a coincidence. And speaking of Lamech, he brings us to our final note of hope. Because there's a Lamech in both lines, right? There was one in the line of Cain and there's one in the line of Seth here. And what's interesting is that in both lines, 
the Lamechs are the only ones in the genealogies who talk. See that? The Lamech back in Cain's line boasted of his sin and his deadly vengeance. Remember telling his multiple wives, like, listen to what I've done, wives. That man hit me and I killed him. And if anybody's going to come for me, their vengeance, oh, you think Cain's was bad with sevenfold? Mine's seventy-sevenfold. Behold, be terrified of me. But what does this Lamech say? Look at what he says in verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Very different. Now Lamech names his son Noah, and you probably have a footnote there in your Bible that tells you that Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. It doesn't mean rest, it's just a, it's a play on sounds. So Lamech here has lived in the world 182 years. 182 years working the ground that the Lord has cursed. He's tired, he's worn out, you can hear him. And yet, even though he's felt the pain of the curse and the effects of sin, he has hope. He's still looking for an offspring of the woman who will come and undo the curse. He's looking for a son who will finally give them relief from their painful labor and offer them real and lasting rest. So he names his son Noah, saying, maybe this is him. He's not like Lamech, the other Lamech, who's out there saying, look how great I am and I'll take on, any, on all comers. I don't need God. He says, oh God, would you help? Would this be the one? Is this the one we've waited for? But you know that what we'll see in the coming chapters is Noah is not the one to give relief from the curse. In fact, his lifetime will see unmatched judgment and death. But Lamech is on to something here. He's hoping for the right thing. And so it is that many, many years later, another son in his line would be born. This son would also be given a name that contained the hope that his life brought. It would be said of this son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this son would finally bring relief from the curse. This son would invite all of us looking for relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands, saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, Jesus is the son we've been waiting for. Jesus is the perfect image of God who perfectly walked with God and the one who died and rose again to give us eternal life and rest. Jesus satisfies, he overcomes the drumbeat, and he is the melody that we hear in the notes of hope. It's Jesus. They're whispering his name, saying, he's coming, he's coming over the drumbeat. We say, how is this going to change? And we hear these notes of hope. And the good news of Jesus is that we can be free from the curse of death and sin. The drumbeat of death is still pounding along, but now the another melody plays over it louder and clearer. A melody of life and hope. A melody of freedom and rest. And that song is the song of our salvation. Because Jesus has triumphed over death by death. And now he stands in victory 
offering life and rest to all who would walk with him. Friends, this is the message of Genesis 5. Way back here, in a genealogy of all places, we're told that while death might seem to have the upper hand, Easter is coming. Because of that, we have a hope both in life and in death. Hear these words. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.